Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, University of Minnesota Extension Educator in Field Crops. Uh, my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, is uh, off today uh, doing some other projects, but we have in the studio uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Cook. Uh, Bob is a University of Minnesota Extension uh, entomologist, and his primary emphasis is in the area of soybeans. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me in today. You betcha. Let's start off a little bit in terms of your background here uh, in Minnesota. You are a Minnesota native. Um, I believe you said from Monticello in, in terms of that, but growing up in that area. Uh, how did you get involved with entomology? Maybe trace us through uh, your interest and in some of your academic training. Sure. Yeah, Dave, that's right. I was born and raised in Monticello, Minnesota, so just a little north of the Twin Cities. And growing up, I always liked the outdoors, hunting and fishing, and uh, grew up just down the road, a few miles away from my grandparents' dairy farm. So I was able to help out there a lot growing up. So with that interest in biology and agriculture, I decided to pursue a, an undergraduate degree in biology. I went to St. John's University, a little north of St. Cloud. And while I was there, I wasn't too sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but in my second year for my first upper level, uh, biology class, I got stuck in an entomology class because the other classes that I wanted to sign up for filled up. And, uh, I was a little upset going into that semester, but by the end of the semester, I was totally hooked on insects. Uh, I think it was due to all the ways good and bad that insects mm -hmm. can affect people. So then I sought out some other opportunities to get more entomology experience because it was a pretty small school. There's just the one entomology class. So between my junior and senior year there, I sent out an email to the University of Minnesota department head asking if any labs needed a summer research assistant. And uh, Bill Hutchison's lab contacted me. So I went down and interviewed and got a job for the summer with them. And that's when I really realized that entomology connected to, to agriculture and especially IPM was where I wanted to be. Uh, by the end of that summer, um, I got an offer for a PhD assistantship. So finished up at St. John's and then started my PhD at the University of Minnesota. And there I was working on uh, risk assessment and looking at a, a new predatory insect, the multicolored Asian lady beetle and its potential impacts on monarch butterfly populations. That's right around the time that there was all the concern about BT corn pollen potentially falling on milkweed and affecting monarch populations. But while we were out there looking at milkweed plants, we started seeing a lot of this new predatory insect out there. So that's kind of uh, what got me going um, on my PhD research path. Um, in Bill's lab, I got a lot of um, experience in integrated pest management as well on vegetable crops. And my co-advisor was Rob Bennett, who's now with the Forest Service. So he brought in a lot of expertise on risk, risk assessment, insect ecology. So it was a, a good uh, team to work with. Um, after my PhD, I did a uh, short postdoc in George Heimpel's lab, working on the impacts of cover crops on soybean insects. So looking to see if you plant soybean in the spring into a fall seeded rye cover crop, if you could get any uh, pest suppression from that. Uh, just a couple summers working on that. After that, I got a job with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, so doing some regulatory entomology. And how long were you with the uh, MDA? Yeah, so that was six years. 
started out as a one-year contract position. They extended it for another year, and then it became a permanent position, uh, working with things like the Emerald Ash Borer. Um, and a lot of the work was focused on trying to keep new pests from coming in. If they got here, trying to detect them with survey networks, trapping and sampling of fields. And then from there, you know, it would lead into things like quarantine or eradication. So did you design some of the networks that we presently have in, in MDA in terms of detection? Yes. While I was there, I was managing some of the, uh, the statewide survey networks. We had field staff spread across the state and they were sampling corn, soybeans, small grains, uh, looking for some of these new pests of concern. And a lot of these pests have uh, regulatory concerns where other countries don't want them. So we need survey data to show that we don't have these pests so that these importers would, would take our crops. Well, in the meantime, back here at the university, while you were at the MDA, who was uh, doing some of the soybean and, and, and corn work at that point in time in, in terms of uh, past faculty here? Right. So uh, Dr. Ken Osley had responsibilities over corn and soybean with research and extension. So he was really heavily involved in the uh, soybean aphid work. And then in addition to that, Dr. David Ragsdale was, was very involved with a lot of the soybean aphid work as well, you know, development of the threshold and um, sampling plans, things like that. A lot, a lot of the foundational um, information that we're still using today. Uh, Ian McRae was involved with some of the, the soybean work up in the northern part of the state. So at this point in time, did you have an, an, an idea that you wanted to get back into more academic and research as opposed to some of the regulatory or what prompted you to, <laughs> you know, to turn a little bit and uh, look back to campus here? Yeah. So, so learning regulatory entomology was, was, was exciting at first, you know, learning something new, but I, I soon started to realize that being a regulator was not my thing. Um, one of, one of the biggest things was some survey work we were doing in the Twin Cities. We found a, uh, a potential detection of a beetle called the Capra beetle at a warehouse. And because of that detection, that warehouse had to shut down its business for some time. And I felt pretty crappy about that and realized I regu regulation is, isn't the thing for me, being the bad cop. I kind of prefer the uh, being on the education end of it and um, I've always enjoyed the research. So when this position opened up for a, um, soybean entomologist focused on research and extension, it, it seemed like the ideal position for me. Again, getting back to, you know, those interests that I talked about early on with agriculture, biology, um, invasive species, all these things, you know, from throughout my, you know, growing up in educational path, you know, it was kind of all coming together in, into what I'm doing now. Well, I know that Dr. Ragsdale had worked, you know, quite extensively with soybean aphid, graduate students, so forth, people that were here, some have gone on to other, other uh, land-grant universities, uh, etc. So uh, did the emphasis, uh, the soybean growers organization wanting to look at more on soybean aphid um, help to kind of split that a little bit, give Ken a little bit more uh, opportunity to spend time in, on the corn side, and obviously with traded corn, you know, there was, there's, there's a lot of work and continues to be. Uh, in there, but the um, would you say that you know the soybean aphids led or drove it a lot in terms of that position that you were able to take? Yeah, you know, Dave, I'm not sure of all the history and how it how it played out there, but I I think it was the increasing problems with soybean aphid in soybean, but at the same time, 
the increasing issues with corn rootworms and their resistance developing to the BT traits. You know, I, I'm assuming for one person or a couple people, it, it was too much. And then, uh, you know, Dave Ragsdale eventually moved into an administrative position and then went down to Texas. Mm-hmm. You know. yeah. it's a good opportunity. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that have to do with uh, the present situation we have out here. We don't necessarily have to go in-depth, but what are some things that are happening in the field? We've we've had a dry summer. Um, Certainly, we've had a dry spring. We've had the month of August, almost in the month of May and June this year. So has that reflected back in terms of some overall activity or in some cases probably lack of activity in some of our traditional insects. Uh, how, how has the weather really impacted us this year? Yeah, so, so the weather has a, has a huge impact on insect pest populations and, you know, our kind of historical key pest in soybean, soybean aphid, you know, going back to the early 2000s. Uh, in the last few years, it hasn't been as problematic as it had previously. And I think that's due to the hot, dry conditions that we've had. The soybean aphid doesn't do as well under the real high temperatures. Um, However, other pests like two-spotted spider mites do very well under these hot, dry conditions. So that's um, a pest that we're definitely concerned about this year, especially in parts of the states that that haven't gotten much rain. Um, Their populations can increase very rapidly. and we were aware of some areas where where folks are needing to treat for um, for spider mite infestations, but it's not all fields. So we definitely want people to be scouting and making their decisions to apply the insecticides or miticides based based on that scouting and thresholds. There are parts of the states where soybean aphid populations are increasing, and and I think um, you know that's that much more reason to be scouting too. You can't just assume that you've got one or both of these pests out there. And, and whichever pest you have, you know, it can influence what your decisions might be for, for what insecticides to apply. Well, we've had economic thresholds for quite some time on, on soybean aphids. Uh, so at the risk of, of, of uh, repeating things here that we fairly much know, we just talk a little bit about what are where's our economic thresholds, uh, even though prices have changed back and forth, or, or where are we still at in terms of uh, soybean aphids in, in terms of scouting and uh, um, deciding whether or not, obviously, in a field situation. Yeah, the, the threshold that we're still recommending for soybean aphid, and this isn't just Minnesota, this is myself and my colleagues across the Midwest, we're still recommending the threshold of 250 aphids per plant. And again, that's based on scouting, getting out into the field, counting or estimating the number of aphids on the plants, averaging that, and then if you reach that average level of 250 aphids per plant, um, that, that's the threshold. We also add on to that that we want the majority of the plants infested because we don't want to make those treatment decisions just based on a couple of hot spots in the field. And we also want to see those populations increasing. The only way we can know that those populations are increasing is if we're scouting on a regular basis, right? Maybe weekly, every 10 days, and seeing those increasing populations. If they're already decreasing, it might not make sense to make an insecticide application because maybe there's a fungal disease in there already driving down the populations, or maybe something's changed with the quality of those plants where the aphids are producing a winged generation that'll fly on, uh, leave that field and fly on to uh, some other fields. 
Well, in Minnesota, as in, in other states, um, we've been able to take advantage of, of federal support, um, integrated pest management, and I think it's fair to mention um, you're, you're one person, obviously, uh, but we have a number of other uh, staff out there across the state that are involved in IPM, and uh, I, I think some of those folks are, are well-known, uh, Bruce Potter uh, at uh, Lamberton, and uh, also Anthony Hansen, now is out at the uh, at Morris at Experiment right. Station. How do you folks work together mm-hmm. in terms of addressing some of these issues? What well, we work together on multiple fronts. On the research end of it, you know, we might conduct trials or experiments at multiple sites using a common protocol, and then that allows us to get more more site years to see how different insecticides are holding up or how resistance levels compare across different parts of the state. Um, on the extension end of it, you know, we're, we're sharing information regularly about how pest populations are building, which pests are becoming a concern. And then based on that, we can uh, get information out to the, um, the stakeholders, farmers, agricultural professionals, be it through uh, crop news articles, fact sheets, um, different uh virtual or in-person presentations. Yeah. So a lot of collaboration, you know, applied research, right. I mean, back and forth, depending upon the site and, and location. And I, I'm assuming that, you know, people will come and go in these positions, but as long as we have the funding in the IPM, Integrated Pest Management, I think is a, is a concept, uh, you know, going to be continuing. Maybe segue a little bit about some new insect species, um, that you're working with, uh, a, a couple of them. You want to tell us a little bit more about what those are? Yeah, so, so as if soybean aphids and spider mites aren't enough to worry about, we've got two new pests, as you're saying, Dave, that, that we're starting to do some research on. One of these is the soybean gall midge, and this is a, a tiny fly whose larvae live inside the soybean stems at the base of the plant, and those larvae feed in there, they essentially girdle the stem, cutting off the flow of water and nutrients, causing the plants to wilt, die, um, causing lodging. This pest was first discovered or identified back in 2018, 2019 as a new species. We're still not sure where it came from. It could be an exotic insect that maybe came from some other part of the world, um, or it's possible that it was a native insect always here, but no one ever noticed it until it started feeding on soybean and causing problems. In Minnesota, this insect is um, fairly widespread across the southwestern part of the state, but in most areas, its abundance is pretty low, so it's not causing too much of a problem in Minnesota. There are a few fields where the numbers um, in some years will get high enough where, where there's uh, some yield loss, um, You know, kind of, I think, as an indicator of uh, kind of the limited scale geographic scale of the large infestations. Uh, my crew has to drive about four hours down to Rock County, Minnesota for a lot of our research just to get into heavy enough infestations to, to make that research meaningful. But as you go farther south into parts of Iowa, um, and especially into Nebraska, there are much more significant widespread infestations of this pest. So it, it could be just a matter of time until populations continue to build and spread in Minnesota. You know, the, the, It could get much worse here potentially. So time will tell. Any other insect species? Yeah. So then more recently than that, in the summer of 2021, we found a tiny uh, leaf mining moth feeding on soybean 
in the U.S. for the first time. One of my colleagues in Canada that summer contacted me asking if I had seen it, and I promptly responded saying, nope, never seen it. Um, But then the next day, sure enough, we were sampling some of our soybean plots on campus, and we found it there. So the, the caterpillars of this insect are so small, they can live inside the leaves, and these caterpillars are kind of flattened, so they can fit inside the leaves, and they feed in there, making little tunnels that we call mines. And while they're feeding, they're killing off that leaf tissue. So they're essentially working like a defoliator, reducing the amount of photosynthetic um, uh, leaf area. And since it's so new, um, we, we don't really know much about it in soybean. We do know this is a native insect. It's always occurred in North America. But feeding on a couple... Uh, legume plants in forested areas. Uh, one of them is um, American hog peanut. So that's fairly widespread in, in wooded areas across the state. And we can find this insect pretty readily there. But for some reason, this insect has decided to start feeding on soybean. You know, we don't know if there was some mutation or something that happened in the population. Um, we find it pretty readily in the Minnesota River Valley. Um, but my crew has been sampling across the state and we found it in soybean as far north as Crookston. We found it in Morris, um, down by Lamberton and then going east to, uh, you know, like the Rosemont area. Um, last year we found it in South Dakota. This year, one of my colleagues found it in North Dakota. So we're, we're still trying to figure out how widespread it is. It's infestations in soybean and uh, trying to learn what, learn what we can about its biology and management. And so from an economic injury level, would I, you are, are you concerned that this is a yield limiting or is it more of a thing that we need to really keep track of? We're still trying to figure that out. Last year, one of the farms that we were working on, the some of the fields reached heavy enough levels of infestation where there may have been some yield loss on the edges of those fields. This insect really seems to like the edges of fields and especially the edges near trees. So last year on those edges, we were seeing levels of defoliation or the percentage of the leaf area that had been destroyed by this insect, um, reaching you know upwards of 20 to 30% injury. And that would be probably enough to cause yield loss based on you know some of the research that, that's been done with other defoliating insects. This year, we're not seeing those high of levels yet on that same farm, but we've got another month for this insect to continue um, feeding in there. So we're keeping a close eye on it and going to be working with that farmer to, uh, you know, keep them abreast of things. And we're working on some other farms too and, and looking for it widespread across the state. I want to jump back to Gullmidge for just a little bit. Now, you just recently attended a, a regional meeting. Right and had an opportunity to um, talk with coworkers from other, other states and, and situations with that. Uh, it's a big deal, obviously, when we get to Nebraska and, and you know, in other, other states and more situations with that. Any recommendation is, is now a good time for our uh, growers and consultants in, in Minnesota, uh, really to keep a sharp eye out, out there at this point in time here. We're, you know, almost to the 1st of August. Yeah, so, so last week, like you said, Dave, we were down in Nebraska, myself and a couple of my students at a, a multi-state field day that we put on. And this was in collaboration with Justin McMeckin from Nebraska, Aaron Hodson uh, 
from Iowa, and these are uh, my colleagues there. We've been collaborating a lot on research and extension for this past. And this field day was focused on providing farmers, agricultural professionals, a hands-on opportunity to see the past, learn how to identify it, and get some of the latest research updates. So scouting at this point in time, again, in Minnesota here, highly recommended. Yeah, so I think in Minnesota, um, the hope would be that we're, we're trying to figure out how widespread this insect really is, where we're getting heavier levels of infestation. Again, I don't think many of our fields would require any kind of insecticide treatment for it yet, but the way things are progressing in other areas, I think we could be there soon. So my hope is that uh, farmers and agricultural professionals will become familiar with this insect, what it looks like, what its injury looks like, how to scout it. Again, looking at the edges of fields, um, edges of fields near last year's soybean, looking at the injury, the symptoms, so the, the darkened lesions at the bases of the stem. You can crack those stems open and see if you can see the bright orange larvae in there. And if you find such fields, uh, myself and Bruce Potter would like to hear about it, again, to figure out how widespread the infestations are, how big the infestations are. And we need more research sites. Um, we're pretty limited right now in areas where we have heavy enough infestations for our research. And we need to be doing this research in Minnesota so that we can have some Minnesota-specific recommendations, right? It's great that there's a lot of research going on in these other states, but we know from other pests that things can change in different geographies, right? The, uh, the plant, insect, environment interactions can be different. You know, one of the things that we have an opportunity to have here at Minnesota in Extension is um, our websites. And I believe a combination of Minnesota Crop News, ULM Extension websites and soybeans and so forth, that's where people can go if they want to get more in-depth, obviously. And you're authoring a lot of that information as well um, that's, that's up on the web. So if they want to see pictures, learn a little bit more about economic thresholds, uh, just detection and scouting, you know, not obviously not just gall midge here, but aphids, you know, et cetera. Those are good sources, and that's part of what we do in extension is provide that situation in terms of um, something that's there 24 hours. Right. Yep. In, in terms of that. What are some uh, other things that you're doing in the lab here when we talk a little bit about aphids, and we've, we've been concerned about resistance uh, with some of our classes of insecticides, uh, uh, pyrethroid, um, you've gotten some funding in, involved in that. Talk a little bit about how that project evolved and, and where you're at right now and, and the significance of this. Yep. So, so when I started this position back in 2013, I was uh, chatting with some of the crop consultants to figure out what, what some of the key issues are that I should be focusing my time on. And I heard from some people that, that they had been seeing or experiencing uh, some of the pyrethroids not working as well as they previously had. So I was able to secure some funding to start doing some survey work in the state where we were going out and collecting aphids from different locations, bringing them into the laboratory, and then performing what we call bioassays, which is essentially where under controlled conditions in the laboratory, we expose the insect different concentrations of insecticide and look at their survival. And then comparing these field populations to laboratory populations that we know do not have resistance, we can get a feel for the level of susceptibility or resistance in these uh, field populations. And sure enough, in 2015, 2016, we first started finding soybean aphid populations with um, reduced mortality 
when they're exposed to these insecticides. So that was our indication that there is pyrethroid resistance in soybean aphid populations. Um, we were able to secure additional funding, get multiple states involved. And so then over multiple years, um, we've found resistant populations um, broadly across the soybean producing areas of Minnesota, into Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, and even up into Manitoba. Um, so a lot of that work, again, was focused on these laboratory assays where we coat the inside of glass vials with the insecticide, put aphids in there, and then check their survival after a certain amount of time. In addition to that, we're doing work in the field where we spray insecticides at labeled field rates to see how well these field applications perform. So we also documented resistance through those assays as well. So it's not just this laboratory phenomenon. Um, it's also occurring in the field as well. And it makes sense. It kind of jives with what farmers and consultants are seeing as well. We were receiving a lot of reports of failures of pyrethroids to control soybean aphid. It certainly is. That's the real world situation. And I think there's been a trend, obviously, as, as new products come on the market. But we also have, um, just like we do in weed control, um, mixtures and right. so forth on, on, on that. Where do you see this control option going in the future here? Um, some of these products obviously are going to be more expensive and are, um, but in terms of that, but they're more efficacious as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so to step back even a little bit from there, we've been primarily managing soybean aphid with pyrethroids and then one of the organophosphates, chlorpyrifos. Right. So we've documented resistance to some of the pyrethroids, especially by fenthrin and lambda sahalothrin. And then that organophosphate that I mentioned, chlorpyrifos, we've lost access to that due to regulation. Mm -hmm. So that's products like Lorisban that we can no longer use. So we've been fortunate to have some newer products become available. Things like um, um, Transform, Safina, Savanto. We've done laboratory and field research on those to show that they're effective against soybean aphid. And they've got the added benefit of being um, relatively non-toxic or less toxic to some of the predatory insects, which is good because you can go in, spray a field, kill off the pest, but preserve the predatory insects that can feed on any aphids that might've survived or any recolonizing aphids. Um, you mentioned um, mixtures and a lot of these mixtures are, are have remained effective against soybean aphid, even if it's a mixture containing a pyrethroid. Um, but in terms of resistance management for insects, we generally prefer to see folks using an alternation of products with individual modes of action, right? So their first application to the soybean field, applying a product with just one insecticide group, and then if they need to reapply to that field, using another, a different insecticide group. And that's a little different than what you'll hear for resistance management for herbicides for weed management, right? Where I think there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I think one of the main recommendations is, is use of these mixtures. Well, it certainly complicates things. And sometimes uh, if you don't separate them out from the get-go, you don't know really what's effective or not. I mean, we obviously have enough history to know the impact of glyphosate or mm -hmm. concerns on, on weeds like water hemp, et cetera. But, um, you know, the, the insect world is a little bit different. Uh, the other thing is insects move, right? 
and uh, and certainly aphids do. And I know that's been some of the big concern that um, Bruce Potter has mentioned before. He says when they're getting ready to go, when they're getting wing, wing pads, and you know, and different things trigger them from moving to the field to field, and and that makes it the management that much more difficult unless you're out there observing. Right, right. So so these mixtures, they're effective. They're good for control of the pest. Um, but when it comes to resistance management, um, th- they may not be the best approach unless certain conditions line up. There there are certain scenarios where, th- where they could make sense for resistance management. You know, you got to make sure that the aphids aren't resistant to uh, one of the active ingredients in there already. Um, it, it's... Uh, the IRAC has come out with a document that lists these different conditions. So this is a group of scientists from different companies that, that produce kind of guidelines and recommendations for, for resistance management for insecticides. So they talk about things like uh, the residual activity of the different insecticides. If one insecticide wears out before the other, that might not be very a very good situation for resistance management. And then there, there's several other things on their list. Well, certainly from an IPM situation, you want to take advantage of insects that are already in the field. Uh, you know, we've done some things in the United States by bringing, you know, predatory insects into the into the United States after uh, making sure that obviously they're going to be in from a safe. We do some of that work here on, on campus. But, uh, you know, what's the best way to encourage growers and in situations and probably go back to that economic threshold um, in, in terms of application, but take advantage of the help that you can get in the field that's already there? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to scouting and using the, the thresholds. You know, again, we, we still stand by that 250 aphid per plant threshold. And what this offers us is the ability to treat the fields only when they really need to be treated. Just because we have aphids there, or even if we get up to 100 aphids per plant, um, we, we know that level of infestation is not causing yield loss. And even if you have 100 aphids per plant, there's no guarantee that those aphid populations are going to continue to increase to damaging levels. But we know that if we get to 250 aphids per plant, then there's a pretty good probability that that population will continue to increase to those higher, more damaging levels. So that's why 250 aphids is that trigger point for lining up the insecticide application. It's not the point where it's, it's not the e- economic loss. injury level. And I think right. that's where people get confused is the threshold and the injury level is much higher than that. Right. right. So then, then by utilizing scouting in these thresholds, we're giving these beneficial insects like the predators and parasitic wasps an opportunity to help suppress the pest populations. And we're re- ideally reducing the number of insecticide applications. So we're not driving more resistance in the soybean aphid or other pests that are out there. Well, as we conclude uh, today, are there some other things that you're looking at in the future, whether it's next year, two, three, four, five years down the road from the standpoint of, uh, you know, research uh, from your standpoint, graduate students, uh, collaboration, um, what are some interesting things, cutting edge that you're looking forward to? Yeah, so we've got some work going on now looking at kind of on a molecular or genetic basis, how are the aphids surviving the insecticides? And it seems to be some different mutations happening in the, on the nerves, the genes on the, that um, regulate the flow of ions on some of the nerves of the insects. There's, there are certain mutations where the insecticide molecules can no longer attach there. So we're trying to, trying to understand that 
um, kind of molecular underpinning to resistance. We've been doing a lot of work with remote sensing for the soybean aphid. We started with handheld sensors and drones, and we've got a uh, paper that we submitted for publication now looking at the use of satellites for scouting for soybean aphids. And it's not trying to see the aphids on the plants. We're trying to detect the stress to the plants that the aphids are causing. Um, for some of these other pests, we've got what I think is some real exciting research with um, biological control for the soybean gall midge. We identified a new species of parasitic wasp. So not only is the gall midge a new pest, but there's a new species of wasp attacking it. So we're trying to figure out how widespread this wasp is in the region, what levels of control it provides. And we're also with uh, another student's research trying to figure out what kinds of cold temperatures the gall midge can survive. And that has implications for how far north it can spread in a cold northern state like Minnesota or what the pest populations might be from one year to the next based on winter temperatures. Certainly, you know, the climate this last year has been different than what we've observed. So I don't know, we'll see how that trend goes, but that, you know, it's going to have an in impact. And so that's where the, the, the multi-year projects right. involving perhaps a grad student, um, other coworkers, um, extension educators like myself and other people get involved with, I think can, can certainly help with that. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you for sitting in today here um, and talking to us a little bit about your background, uh, current research projects, uh, some of the work that you're doing here in terms of that, uh, working with uh, soybeans and, and soybean growers, but also those, those cutting-edge situations and so forth, uh, I think will really benefit uh, Minnesota farmers. So thanks again, uh, and we would like to just uh, say today that we thank you for attending our, the Minnesota CropCast uh, episode. Uh, this is the University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Dave Nikolai, and thank you, and have a good day.